1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Wednesday, September 8th. From The Recount, this is the News Items Podcast which is loosely based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Generations ago, the Industrial Revolution kicked off an era of dangerous man-made climate change, but a much younger technology could help us move beyond it. Artificial intelligence, and specifically machine learning, could be used for any number of things, such as optimizing carbon-emitting supply chains, improving climate models, and helping researchers create next-generation batteries. My guest today, Carnegie Mellon's Priyadanti, is the co-founder and chair of Climate Change AI. The organization works at precisely this intersection of, as the name indicates, AI and climate change. She and I talk about how machine learning can help us tackle this generational challenge as well as what its limitations are. Here we go. Hello, Priya. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, John. Thanks for having me on.
2: Much of your work exists at the intersection of machine learning, which is a type of artificial intelligence and climate change. What do these two things have to do with each other?
1: Yeah, so there are lots of different ways in which machine learning and climate change are related. So one, machine learning can be used in a variety of ways to help tackle climate change across a Different sectors, for example, providing better forecasts in the electric power sector by gathering information on the sources of emissions or pinpointing deforestation by optimizing complex systems like our transportation systems or supply chains and so forth. So, there are lots of different ways in which AI can help with climate action. At the same time, there's a huge, you know, nuanced relationship between AI and climate change that goes beyond just the uses of AI for climate action. So AI algorithms in general can have large impacts on climate change, even when they're used in ways that we don't think of as being climate relevant. Things like the use of AI for advertising in ways that increase our consumption and therefore can increase emissions would be one example of this. Hmm. Or AI is a key technology within autonomous vehicles, which may or may not ultimately be good for the climate, depending on, for example, whether they bolster private fossil fuel transportation, or whether they bolster public low-carbon transportation. So the relationship between AI and climate change um, from an applications perspective is quite broad. And then also, AI itself has an energy footprint when you run an AI algorithm on computational infrastructure that creates emissions. And while many AI algorithms are quite small, they can be run on a laptop, things like regression or decision trees. Some of the largest state-of-the-art models in areas such as natural language processing have really large carbon footprints equivalent to flights or um, the lifetime emissions of a car, if you think about sort of the whole process of developing and fine-tuning and everything, those models. So when you think about the use of AI in a climate change sphere, it makes sense to look at this holistically. Both how can AI help, but also what are pitfalls to look out for, including in cases where we maybe aren't thinking about something as climate relevant. It usually often does have an impact on the climate.
2: What's the difference between artificial intelligence and deep machine learning?
1: Yeah, so it's, yeah, a very a very good question. Artificial intelligence is a, a generally broad term. It refers to kind of any computational algorithm that takes on a complex task, and usually tasks we'd associate with human intelligence, so things like speech or perception or, or or reasoning, those kinds of things. Machine learning is a very specific subset of artificial intelligence that is specifically looking at how do I automatically learn how to reason from data. So if I'm given a large number of examples. Can I try to understand some patterns in those examples and use those patterns to do some kind of task? So, within that deep learning, since you brought it up, is one specific kind of machine learning. And it's basically, again, a data driven method where the computational algorithm that's learning from the data is inspired by, loosely inspired by the neural networks in our brain. Um, So, these are called artificial neural networks. And that's uh, sort of the, the basic building block that is used within deep learning.
2: And is that what you basically spend all of your time on, is deep learning?
1: Yeah, so I specifically work on on deep learning. And the thing I find really interesting about deep learning is that fundamentally, you can think of deep learning or artificial neural networks as a bunch of functions that you can string together. Mm -hmm. So you have some kind of input, something like historical weather. You run it through a bunch of functions. It produces some output. Maybe you wanted to output your electricity demand forecast for tomorrow, and then based on some signal as to how good that electricity demand forecast is, you sort of adjust what your functions look like in order to make that electricity demand forecast good. And the reason I spend a lot of time looking at deep learning is I think a lot about what are those functions that we actually string together. There are traditional, you know, functions like things called sigmoids and values etc. These functions that are often used in the context of deep learning. But then when you start to look at something like the electric power system, you have physics on your system that you have to respect. So why not actually embed that physics as a function in your neural network? And so that's what my work basically does. It tries to view neural networks, this sort of string of functions, as basically, you know, a way in which you can kind of insert modules that capture information that you actually care about in places like the electric power sector so you can, again, take advantage of both data and physics.
2: You said in an interview you did with Bloomberg that there are sort of five broad ways to think about AI and ML machine learning climate applications, and you listed them. Why don't we go through each one? Distilling data was the first one. It seems straightforward, but is there something that you could add to it or you think it's more important than just the two words that i gave to us
1: yeah i would say just to give some context on this so we're starting to see large streams of either raw or unstructured data emerge so things like satellite and aerial imagery large corpora of text documents for things like companies financial disclosures or policy documents etc and this is a lot of data and it's a lot of information But sometimes it's so much that it's not necessarily able to be easily analyzed. It's not necessarily immediately actionable for a decision maker. So machine learning has been used to do things like pinpoint deforestation or locations of buildings or the sources of emissions from satellite imagery, or do things like analyze large bodies of policy documents to try to understand trends. What did decision makers do in one country versus another? What can we learn from that? in order to then facilitate decision-making.
2: The second one was optimizing complex systems. When I think of the grid, I I think of the difficulty you have bringing solar power or wind power at exactly the right time and exactly the right volume, given that the system has to be in a state of animation at all times. Optimizing complex systems and machine learning, how does that work?
1: Yeah. And so this applies to not just electric power systems, but also things like transportation systems or supply chains. And the way machine learning comes into play here, it's a combination of one bringing in real time data that can be you know, acted upon dynamically another one is actually providing algorithms to to do the optimization and this can either be pure machine learning based algorithms or machine learning algorithms that are integrated with the optimization algorithms that we were using before so there's a body of work that for example looks at can we take an optimization algorithm that's maybe really large and slow to run, like power system optimization algorithms? And can we approximate portions of these algorithms or otherwise use a machine learning approach to slim down that optimization model in a way that allows it to then run it more quickly and dynamically? Um, And that's a kind of way forward that I'm really personally excited about how can we sort of bridge the benefits of machine learning models with sort of the existing knowledge that we have from from existing optimization models
2: can the machines write their own optimization model algorithms
1: <laughs> i think some people are definitely thinking about this but i would say this is a situation in which it's it's actually really important to have humans in the loop so In particular, an AI algorithm that is optimizing for something, you want to ask the question, is the thing it's optimizing for good or correct? And I think there's often a value judgment there. An AI algorithm is also often not optimizing for exactly the thing you want it to optimize for. It's optimizing for a proxy. So for instance, if you want to reduce the emissions of a particular supply chain, that might be your objective. But often because of the data that's available, because of the organizational processes that are available, what you might encode is make the system more efficient, reduce cost. But then right. that might, for example, increase the amount the system is used that might have a, a rebound effect on, on a mission. So I think it's always really important that there are people like sitting down and trying to understand Is this algorithm actually doing what I want it to do and what are also the side effects or consequences that I should be aware of and either mitigate by retuning the objective of the algorithm or by also policy or organizational incentives around how the algorithm is actually used.
2: One of the things you point out about machine learning is that it accelerates scientific discovery exponentially. Give us some examples of how that in fact works.
1: So when you are a scientist who is maybe synthesizing materials for next generation batteries or solar panels or something like this, you're often doing it by trial and error, you know, looking at your past experiments, trying to understand what to try next. And what machine learning has recently been used to do is to analyze your past experiments and others past experiments sort of en masse and try to understand both are there things in there that worked well? Are there patterns that we see that might be worth bringing forth into into the next experiments that we try? And also, are there parts of the space that are potentially fruitful, but that haven't been explored yet? So how can you design next experiments that maybe give you more information also about what may or may not work next? So basically, machine learning has been used to sort of Analyze patterns in past experiments to then give suggestions to scientists who are working in labs, for example, what might make sense for you to test out next. And the goal is that this doesn't fully replace actual experimentation, but that it can hopefully guide that process and make it overall a bit faster.
2: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Priyadanti. Another thing that you've talked about with respect to AI climate applications is how machine learning is making climate simulations much quicker. Can you walk us through that?
1: So I'm not a climate scientist, so apologies to all the climate scientists out there who know much more about this than I do. (laughs) But climate models are, they're very large. They tend to take a ton of compute to run. And this means that you tend to only be able to make climate predictions, for example, over really large spatial areas. So if somebody wanted to ask the question, what will happen in my specific city at this specific time in the future, you generally don't have the granularity in climate models to be able to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interest in trying to, again, speed up or slim down climate models in a way that allows us to get more localized insights. And the sort of two two big ways in which machine learning has been used here to bring up a theme I I mentioned earlier. One is to approximate components of climate models that are really computationally intensive to run and instead fit uh, a machine learning model to them that's faster to run. So this comes up, for example, with cloud physics. Clouds are a huge source of uncertainty in climate models. Clouds can either warm or cool the earth. And there have been sort of some efforts to try to instead of model the entire complicated physics of one cloud which can be computationally expensive can you fit a machine learning model to that to approximate that and then integrate that cheaper machine learning model into your larger climate model and therefore speed up the overall climate model so that's one way sort of learning approximate models for parts of climate models and then another way is basically by trying to reduce some uncertainty in some of the parameters in climate models so Things like how reflective is ice in the Arctic or Antarctic is something that has an effect on on climate models or what are the properties or composition of soil in a particular area. So this theme of distilling information that we talked about before, if you can take sensor data or, or large scale raw data and try to understand from there, what is the reflectivity of sea ice? What is the soil composition here? Then you can put that information into your climate model and reduce some of the uncertainty within that model.
2: You said finally in that interview with Bloomberg that a great benefit of machine learning would be the improvement of predictions. Is that proven to be true? Are the predictions getting better?
1: Yes. This is, again, to bring it back to the electric power sector, a place where machine learning has had demonstrated impact already. So in kind of bringing in heterogeneous sources of data, so things like historical weather, but also things like if you have cameras that are pointed up towards the sky and can tell you about the clouds that are moving in, your machine learning algorithm can take all of this information into account then telling you what it thinks the solar or wind power production is going to be soon going forward. So that's a power systems example. But there are also other examples where, for example, machine learning is used to forecast transportation demand or crop yields or other things that are, you know, useful from a climate decision making perspective.
2: Like the hurricane we just had, it seems astonishing how precise the modeling is so that you can say it's going to move, you know, seven miles an hour and it's going to hit this place, but not that place. Are we going to see that that sort of specificity in the near future for, for climate related, let's say flooding or sea rise or whatever?
1: I hope so. Um, and I think that there's a lot of work to do to get there, but that machine learning can play a role. I think the uh, important thing to think about is machine learning is never the sole tool that is going to solve a particular problem. It's always sort of integrated with other tools. You know, it, it's always embedded within some kind of organization or decision-making process. And there are lots of places where machine learning is not necessarily the correct tool. So I think that regardless of how we get there, I really do hope to see sort of better climate forecasts, better notions of flood mapping, et cetera, And I think there are places where machine learning can help with that.
2: If you look at like the city of Miami or lower Manhattan or whatever, will we be able to say in 10 years, lower Manhattan is underwater? I mean, are we able to be that precise?
1: I think that that level of precision is is definitely something that there are a lot of kind of startups that have started to crop up in this space to try to, for example, inform insurance policies, because right. insurers want to know exactly this, right? What is the risk associated with insuring a particular asset over the next decade or so? So a lot of the approaches that I've seen here are a combination of this speeding up climate models to try to get more granular predictions and also doing things like the the theme of distilling information before. There was a nature paper, I want to say uh, a year and a half or two years ago, that actually used a combination of, of satellite imagery and other data to update our estimates of the elevation of particular coastal areas. And that has a huge input to our estimates of you know when exactly they'll flood. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of work that's really trying to bring exactly the level of specificity that, that you're mentioning to the table.
2: It's funny you mention insurance because you think of home insurance and all of the various insurance that goes into, I live on The Long Island Sound coast of Connecticut, we live far away from the Sound, but a lot of people live right up against it. And they have home insurance, and of course, the insurance companies then have reinsurance companies that back them up. And if the modeling is correct about the impact of climate change, all the reinsurance companies are going to be broke uh, (laughs) within, within a fairly short period of time, which leaves, obviously, the government holding the bill. But I wanted to ask, I mean, if you're a reinsurance company, it would seem to me that you would be coming to you more or less every day to find out what you've learned. Is there tremendous interest from the insurance companies?
1: I think there's been as always like with these sectoral transitions, you know, varying amounts of recognition. I think some reinsurance companies that are definitely taking this very seriously and others that at least we have not yet heard from. <laughs> and this is exactly the the idea of, of some of these startups, right, that they're really trying to say, look, we can provide you these climate analytics that you so desperately need in order to adjust your business models to be still viable in in a world where we where, you know, climate change is happening. And I think this is sort of across many different sectors true that a lot of businesses, a lot of companies are really going to have to reevaluate the way in which they operate and do business in a world where increasingly we're seeing the effects of climate change. And machine learning and and data analytics can play a part in that. At the same time, there fundamentally needs to be a will to act. and. I think one of my biggest fears in this space is that while gathering data is, of course, very useful for decision making, sometimes it can be used as a bit of a tactic to stall, right? We don't have the information yet. We're waiting on these fancy machine learning algorithms to be implemented before we do anything. And that's the wrong thinking. Absolutely. We need to make decisions now based on the information we have. And we also need to work on understanding, you know, where are the gaps in our understanding? Where can we gather more data to refine those decisions going forward? But it definitely shouldn't be viewed as a one step than the other. We know climate change is happening. We do have a very good idea of the kinds of effects it's going to have and where those effects are going to be. And while we can refine those estimates, there's plenty of information to start making decisions as well.
2: I was thinking back to the mapping of the human genome and one thing that was really striking in that time period was it, you know, just a tremendous sense of excitement about where the possibilities of the science, and I wondered, is that, is that shared in, in your, quote, space, unquote? Is there a tremendous sense of excitement about bringing machine learning to bear on the climate crisis and, you know, where you might be able to make a huge contribution to at least mitigating it?
1: There is definitely a lot of excitement. I think it is also met in measure by a lot of skepticism. And I think in some sense, both of these camps are right. Because there has been so much excitement and hype around machine learning, there are lots of places in which it is maybe used in an ill-informed manner, in places it shouldn't be used. It can, because it's flashy, divert funding from things that are less flashy but still impactful. So I think there's also a lot of reason to be to be skeptical, and and really the truth lies somewhere in between. Um, and I think it's really important to to bring in that sort of real understanding of of what the goal is here, which is tackling climate change. The goal is not to get machine learning everywhere. The goal is to tackle climate change. And I think if we can sort of get behind that goal, I think a lot of things fall into place behind that.
2: All right. Sadly, that's all the time we have today. Priyadanti, thanks so much for having joined us.
1: Thanks for having me on, John. That was a lot of fun.
2: Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre bien Ali Allie Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Ben McNamara. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with Joe Cannon, the author of nine published novels, and a tenth one, the Berlin Exchange coming out in January. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.